You're listening to another New Hope Chapel podcast. This message is from our series called Life After Pentecost, presented by Justin Hibbard, pastor of New Hope Chapel. On the day of Pentecost, something kind of crazy happened, right? The Holy Spirit came, and this was this was pretty intense. All of a sudden, people were speaking, or at least people were hearing in other languages, and tons of fire were resting over people, and uh, this was this was this was unbelievable. It was the fulfillment of Jeremiah 31. It was Jeremiah 31 that tells us that one day God would give us a new covenant, not like the old covenant, which Israel broke, even though God was a husband to them. It would be a new covenant where God would write his laws on their hearts and on their minds, and they would be his people, and God would be their God. This was, this was it. And the apostles there understood right away that this was it. This was the moment of fulfillment that they had been waiting for, that Jesus had said, wait in Jerusalem for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Well, something strange happened that day. Not only did 3,000 people accept the Lord and have their lives turned around, but suddenly Christianity spread like wildfire. And it spread in places they never imagined it spreading. It spread to the Gentiles, right? And if we read in the story of Acts, we find that they're kind of surprised that the Gentiles received the Holy Spirit. I mean, to us, they were like, well, obviously, you know. But to them, it was this was this was not something that they really expected. Even though Peter himself said, the promise is for you who believe, you and anyone else who is near or far, that if you believe, you will receive the Holy Spirit. So they had an issue. And in Acts 15, we read about this issue. Because the Jews could not understand how these Gentiles who had no context of the Jewish faith could just walk in and receive the Holy Spirit without understanding or at least living to some degree in the Jewish context that they had grown up in. And so it says in verse 1, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. I mean, could you imagine receiving the Holy Spirit and having someone come up to you and says, okay, now you get circumcised. I mean, like, you know what I mean? These guys, and this is what they, this is what they, they thought. They really thought that you had to at least follow at least some of the law of Moses because they could not conceive that. So the council got together and this is what was decided. And we read about this. Starting in verse 19. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them four things. Now take a look at these four things. Abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. How many of you, when you received the Lord, you went to church And they said, okay, now those of you are saved, four things to remember. Don't eat food sacrificed to idols. Abstain from sexual immorality. Don't eat food that's been strangled or drink blood. Probably none of us. Probably none of us have ever given that advice to anyone else as well. Well, we'll talk about that. Is there a principle that uh, can guide us through this new life, this new life after Pentecost? And we've looked at um, a few, actually this is the third part of this. First, we start off with the parallels of Pentecost. What are the two parallels? The, the first Pentecost event, the, the one that the Jewish people 
commemorate when they celebrate Shavuot in May, or in the late springtime. They celebrate the giving of law to Moses. Remember, Moses was the only one invited to that mountain. And meanwhile, while he was on the mountain receiving the law from God, the people in Israel were committing idolatry. And because of that, the law was broken, and 3,000 people were put to death that day. But in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came there in Jerusalem, everyone who believed received it. They were all told to stay there. And when he came, it made such an impact that 3,000 people were compelled to give their life to the Lord. That is the parallel of those two Pentecosts. After that, we've learned about the person of Pentecost. Just who is this person? Not who is it, but who is he? The person of the Holy Spirit. And, and sometimes we don't understand who is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, but it is a he who is active in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And one of the things we looked at by looking at some of the different verses is we saw that in the Old Testament that the person of the Holy Spirit oftentimes uh, showed up, and it was extraordinary. It was not an ordinary event. But in the New Testament, what Peter tells us is that those who believe, when you believe, you will receive the Holy Spirit. Paul says in Ephesians 1, having believed, you were marked with the Holy Spirit. In other words, it's expected. It is to be expected that the moment we believe, we receive the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus says, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to give you a helper to help you in your walk. Not only that, but when, uh, when people receive the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, sometimes it came on them for a short amount of time, and enable them to prophesy or do something else, and then it left. In other words, it was transient. But what we see in the New Testament is that it's permanent. There in that same passage in Ephesians chapter 1, it says, um, it says, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit for the day of your inheritance. And we're also told not to grieve the Holy Spirit for which we are sealed. In other words, it is a permanent thing. The last thing is that whereas... In the old, in the old covenant, the Holy Spirit only came to certain special people, maybe priests or, or someone that, that was really holy. But what we learn about in the New Testament is the Holy Spirit is sanctifying. He's the one that makes us holy. Okay? So there, you don't have to be perfect to receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that makes you holy unto God. He is sanctifying. We also talked about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and talked about the the need for us to submit to the Holy Spirit on a day-to-day basis, immersing ourselves in what the Holy Spirit, what his life is all about. But today I want to talk about this other idea. Is there a principle of Pentecost? What is the guiding principle or what are the laws that we're supposed to follow? Is it enough to say that God's going to write his law on our hearts and on our minds or Do we follow a set of rules? And we're going to look at that in just a moment. But I want to start off with a little video from one of my favorite movies, Office Space. And in this movie, or in this clip, a few people destroy a fax machine. No, that's not it. That's not the clip. The clip on this one is about, for those of you, how many of you have seen the movie Office Space? Okay, so I don't really need to explain it. Um, it, it, you'll You'll get the gist. We have sound. What's happening in here 
And, and the whole movie is about this tension between a guy who has way too much freedom in expressing himself, right, and uh, just ignores his boss, and this girl who's stuck at this job where expressing yourself is wearing more than 15 pieces of flair. We, we all get that. And, and you know, it, it makes sense. There's a rule that's given, and the rule is 15 pieces, and she does 15 pieces, and then she gets in trouble for it and is wondering, why am I getting in trouble for doing the minimum? When I was a teacher, my first year teaching um, Spanish, I taught a honors Spanish three class, and um, I gave a big project. I said, I want you guys to do a report, oral and um, written report, on anything you want in Spanish. And I thought, I got two statements that are basically the indictment of American education following that assignment. One of them raised their hand and said, what do you mean everything, anything I want? And I said, well, whatever your heart's desire. If you like to sail, talk about sailing. If you like uh, to ride your bike, if you like cars, if you like architecture, whatever it is, as long as it's in Spanish. And she just said, Mr. Hibbert, we're not used to that much freedom. I need more rules. I need more confinement. I thought, well, that's just sad, is what that is. And the second thing uh, that someone said is, she raised her hand and said, okay, be straight with me here. What's the minimum I need to do? <laughs> to get an A. Oh man, when it comes to rules, those are two things, right? They become the minimum for us. That, that guy that comes up to Jesus and says, all right, be straight with me, Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? When we talk about rules, that's what comes to mind. Our flawed way of thinking is that we're going to do the very minimum to get by, right? We, and we like the boundaries. We like the rules because they give us boundaries and they tell us exactly, you do this and you do this and you do this, and, and that's how it all works. Let me take you back to Eden for a moment. Because in Eden, Adam and Eve were given extravagant freedom. In fact, when we read the Genesis passage, you get the sense that there's not many rules. And when there is that one rule, it's sort of de-emphasized in extravagant freedom. Oh, Adam and Eve, you can eat from any of these trees that are here. Just don't eat from the naughty tree there in the middle of the garden, right? <laughs> Don't eat from that tree. You can eat from any of those trees. But of course, Adam and Eve, they took their freedom to another level, and they disobeyed God. And so they were kicked out of the garden, didn't have that relationship with God anymore. So God wanted to relate to his people. And so he gives them the law. And when we talk about the law, we're not just talking about Ten Commandments. Because Exodus 20 goes on and on and on, and it's not until Exodus 31 that Moses is actually handed the tablets. So, we're not just talking about 10 commandments here, we're talking about 613 commandments, 613 laws. And because it's not just enough for God to say to us, hey, remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy, don't work, we have to come up with all these rules like, what does work mean? And what does holy mean? And you know what, what, okay, so if work is walking, how far can I walk before it's work? Oh, a mile. So what if I put my possessions down a mile from my home and then walk from that possessions and then put my possessions down another mile down? And we come up with rules on top of rules on top of rules and welcome to the Talmud. The Talmud volumes and volumes and volumes of what it means to follow the law. This is what Jesus was combating about. He, stand, he says to the Pharisees, what are you Pharisees? I mean, you create these laws that just weigh on people and you don't even bother to help them with it. 
Is this what we're supposed to follow? Is this what it means that God has written his laws on our hearts, that now we can follow these rules? Well, one of the, a great quote I, I found recently that I just find so helpful in this, and this is pretty much, I think, sums up what is the principle of Pentecost, is in this quote by John Eldridge in his book, Wild at Heart. He says, because our hearts have strayed so far from home, he's given us the law as a sort of handrail to help us back from the precipice. But the goal of Christian discipleship is the transformed heart. That's the goal of Christian discipleship. The goal of Christian discipleship is the transformed heart. We move from a boy who needs the law to the man who is able to live by the spirit of the law. And we read about some of these exact same statements from Paul. In Galatians 5, and this is a, this is a, um, from the message, it says this, My counsel is this, live freely, animated and motivated by God's Spirit, and then you won't feed the compulsions of selfishness. Why don't you choose to be led by the Spirit and so escape the erratic compulsions of a law-dominated existence? In Romans 7, he says, By dying to what once bound us, which is sin, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What he's saying is this. When you are married, you make vows to each other, very serious and significant vows. But I doubt that that a husband or a wife would say, you know, I'm going to cherish you because I made a vow to cherish you, right? I'm going to be faithful to you because I made a vow to be faithful with you. Chances are you're going to say, I'm going to do this because I love my spouse and I love honoring them. I love being in a relationship with them. And if I do this or if I do that, that breaks the relationship and that enough, that's enough for me to walk away from whatever that is. So when we talk about living in the spirit, I want you to think of that type of relationship. You are in a relationship with people. You know what buttons not to push. You know where to walk and where not to walk because you love that person, not just because you're afraid of them, not because there's some law about it, but because you are in a relationship with them. You know, this in in my life, this sort of has been a revelation in my life, because as many of you know, I grew up as a Seventh-day Baptist. And as a Seventh-day Baptist, we took that fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And we, oh man, we were, we obeyed that commandment. You know, my Josh could probably tell you lots of stories of, of how I talked to him about the fourth commandment. And, uh, and, and for us, what it meant was this, is that we felt that the, being a, a, being true to God's law meant not changing things. So we didn't change the worship from Saturday to Sunday because the original day of worship is the seventh day, is the Jewish Sabbath, right? And so we we followed the law uh, as much as possible in these Ten Commandments. And and you know, in my family, we went to church on Saturday, and then although we did go out to eat, which I don't understand how that fit with obeying the law and making other people work and everything, but forget about going. <laughs> There was always someone who could justify something. And, and then, but, you know, we didn't go to stores. We didn't go to movies until after sundown. We didn't do this. We didn't do that or this. 
You know, it just became a, a laundry list of rules of which we, what we did and more like what we didn't do, right? So I was on a missions trip in uh, Michigan, and I, I, it was at a Seventh-day Baptist church there. And their church did something neat on Saturdays. They, after church, they would do these things called Sabbath delights. And, and so one day, I remember we went rafting down the river. And my, and my, and the, the two that I were with, they, they were, uh, from Jamaican homes, and they actually came from Toronto. And they were even more stringent about the law. In fact, they didn't eat pork or anything like that. And, um, and, and I, I remember when they told us about the Sabbath delights, they, they were kind of a little bit of, uh, I don't know if we should be doing this type of thing. But how wonderful it was just to kind of go down the river, lazy, you know. I, I'm sure I wasn't doing any work that day. And, um, but another thing that they, that they did was they had, uh, I remember one Saturday afternoon we came home from church. And so we were resting, kind of taking a nap. And, um, and instead of watching a movie, you know, like Die Hard or something else, uh, we, they wanted, they were like, well, we're going to watch this kind of nature show, this show that sort of reminds us about creation and, and everything like that. And so we, we watched this show. And, you know, as I was thinking about this further on in my life, I, I wondered, is what we're doing right? I mean, we sort of trump up this one day, and and those of you may have come home from homes that where Sunday was that day, where you didn't go to work and you went to church, and things were closed, and um, and from sundown on Saturday night to sundown Sunday Sunday night, maybe you didn't do anything, um, and and I'm not here to talk about what day is the Sabbath or anything like that, but what I am here to say is that I, you know, what I started to wonder is I started to wonder was that the intent of the law? to make this one special day? Or was the intent of the law to make every day like that one special day? That's what I started wondering. Was it all about uh, what we did on... Why why on Saturday did we make this day extra spiritual and the other six days not? And I think when we talk about the word holy, that's something that gets in our mindset as we think extra spiritual. There's There are... The word Sabbath is used some 50 times from Genesis to Deuteronomy. And only on one occasion does it talk about any type of worship. In Leviticus 23, it says it's a day of sacred assembly. The rest of the time, it's about don't do work. But somehow we've gotten into our minds through the traditions and everything else that there's this one day that's extra spiritual because it's supposed to be holy. Holy means set apart. It's supposed to be holy to God. But I wondered, you know, why is it that just this one day? Shouldn't the other days be like this one day as well? What if instead of just making one day a day for the Lord, we made every day a day for the Lord? What if we lived like every day was a Sabbath? Now, maybe we can't take off of work every day, although I would love to, (laughs) and I'm sure you would too. But our work continues. But maybe this idea of setting something aside to God should be an everyday practice rather than just one day. And you know, when I look in the book of Acts, you know, I, I spent a lot of time debating and listening to debates between people who, who obeyed the Seventh-day Sabbath and those who were Sunday keepers about whether, what New Testament passages support what. And there was always this debate about, well, on this day they got together, we see them going to the synagogue, and then of course there's that passage where Paul's preaching and the guy falls out the window and that occurs on the first day. And so there was all this arguing back and forth and back and forth. And I sort of look at it a little bit different, like what does Acts chapter um, what does Acts chapter 2 say? Well, Acts chapter 2 says 
every day they got together. And isn't it awesome that every day they're getting together and they're not arguing about which day they should get together, whether it's Saturday or whether it's Sunday or whether it's Thursday or whatever. We are made for community. And what the Holy Spirit does is we're made for this relationship with God. We're made, that's how God designed us in Eden. We're made for relationship with God. We're made for relationship with man. It is not good for man to be alone. And so what we read in Acts, Acts chapter 2, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Every day they got together. Their whole lives were changed. Every day was about giving their life up to the Lord. Why? Why is it? Why? Because God has transformed their hearts. It's no longer a set of rules. It's about this transformed heart that every day it's turned to the Lord. Let's talk about that for just a moment because something shifted and we can see it when we look at the temple. Because the temple is set up in sort of different circles. And the closer you get to the inner circle, the more holy it is. And by holy, I mean man can't go there. That's what holy means. Sinful man can't be there. Okay, so Moses is the only one invited on that holy mountain at Mount Sinai. And every time you get closer and closer to that inner place, more and more people are excluded. The Gentiles are excluded. Women are excluded. So you get to the holy place. Only Jewish men could go there. Only the priests could go there. And then you're, you, you stand in front of this curtain, that curtain that separates the holy place from the most holy place, where the Ark of the Covenant was, and only one man could go there, and that was the high priest, and that was only once a year. But when Jesus died, as we talked about last week, when Jesus died, that curtain split from top to bottom. It was the invitation from the holy God to come to him, to allow him to penetrate the very parts of our unholy life and make us like him. That's what that day did. That's what the Holy Spirit invites us to. And so there's this enormous shift because whereas the Holy, whereas the temple was the center of worship, that was God's dwelling place. We read about, oh, I will fill the tabernacle with my presence. And you'll know because you'll see the smoke. And all of this other stuff, the Ark of the Covenant will rest in the most holy place. We see a giant shift. And we read about it in two occasions in 1 Corinthians 3. Know ye not that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God does not dwell in buildings. He dwells within his people. Know ye not that your bodies are the temple of God. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. In 1 John 4, John writes, You dear children are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. That's what, that's what the transformed life is all about. That's what God's writing his laws on our hearts and on our minds. That's what we are his people. He's turned our lives into temples. He's turned our lives into temples. So we say, well, how do, how do I achieve this? What's, what's this all about? How do I know what the law of God is? How do I know what he wants me to do? I think that's probably the big question. And we like to have rules. Like, well, what, I want to know, what are my boundaries here? And I think Jesus tells us exactly how to find them. Because Jesus has asked a very important question. Jesus, what's the most important law? 
in Scripture. And Jesus says this. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Love is the answer. Uh, John Lennon's song just popped in my head, right? <laughs> love is the answer. Well, what does that mean, Jesus? What does it mean to love you? I mean, do I have to follow rules? Again, this is a relationship. And Jesus is explaining to us about this type of relationship. It is a relationship of love. It is not just one way. It is not just you to him. It is him to you. I will be your God. Oh, Israel, how I've longed to gather you like a hen gathers its chicks. I long to have this relationship with you. Love the Lord. Just like you love your friends, just like you love your spouse, you have that relationship with you, with them. Have that relationship with the Lord. Well, what does that look like? I, I don't know. It could be different for everyone. For me, it's, it's sitting down sometimes in my hammock in the morning and, and just saying, God, that my life is yours. The, the, the exercise we did last week where we offered our lives to God, maybe it's that every day. Maybe it's you listening. Maybe it's you uh, walking on the beach. Maybe it's you sailing. Maybe it's you. But it's you with God is the thing. It is you with the Lord. And I love this image here, if it ever shows up. Oh, there it is. Okay. I love this image here of a father and a son, you know. Because what God invites us to is this life where he he teaches us about himself and that only comes through that relationship where we say, well, my father loves this and my dad was great at this. And and Jesus always talked about his father. He always talked about, oh, in my father's house and in this and that. Well, what he's inviting us to is this type of relationship where we can just spend time together and get to know who he is and what he has for us and what is his nature. And he promises us that Jeremiah 31 passage is a promise. I will write my law. I'll tell you who I'm, what I'm about and who I am, and I'll, I'll put my nature and my character and everything about me on your hearts and on your minds. So I just want you to focus on that image and just read again this passage. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. They will all have that relationship with me. From the least of them, from the little ones, from the ones with the least education, from the ones that have the least wealth and resources, to the rich, to the well-known, to the intelligent, to the people with advanced degrees, however, to the older ones, they will all know me. Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's podcast. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a small expression of the much larger body of Christ that spans across the world. We're a group of believers helping each other on our lifelong journeys to become like Jesus. While we have a variety of distinctives that make us a unique church, our main desire is to be God's church, to love Him, follow Him, to learn from Him, to let Him lead us and change our lives. We are His disciples and He is our rabbi. Join us in the story that God is writing called New Hope Chapel. To learn more about our church, visit us at newhopechapel.org or check us out on Facebook slash newhopechapelmd. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and iTunes. Music kindly provided by the least of these. Thanks again for listening and God bless.